How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Like my wife said, my name is Gino Allison, and I'm one of the pastors here. Just so glad to see you here. So wonderful to be here in the house of the Lord this morning. Special welcome to anybody who's visiting with us for the very first time or if it's your second time. Thank you so much for coming um, to hang out with us. In the seat backs in front of you, if you're a guest, um, and in the guest bag that you received is a Connect card. If you could just fill that Connect card out so we can have a, a, a record of your visit and you just drop that in the offering, uh, offering bucket, we would appreciate that. Also, special welcome to anybody who's listening to us online or through our uh, podcast on iTunes. We welcome you to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings as well. I just want a brief testimony this week. We, we do basketballs, uh, basketball here. Uh, we clear out the gym on Sundays, and we have basketball in here on Wednesday nights. And we had our, we had our largest uh, number of guys in here this week. We had 45 guys show up this week to basketball. And it was, it was a little chaotic, but it was, it was awesome. One of my regulars came up to me. He was a little frustrated that he didn't get to play as regularly as he normally did. And he said, you know, Pastor, if you just close the door after the first 20 guys, you know, that would be all right. I said, Jeremy, you come to play basketball. I come to talk to as many guys as I possibly can. And he kind of said, oh, okay, I get it, you know. But it was amazing. We got to share the gospel with 45 guys this, this week, and 45 guys had a good time playing basketball. So, hey, if you guys play basketball, we would love to have you come and fellowship with the guys, help mentor them, and just help make this thing, uh, thing go. It's growing, and the word is spreading, and God is doing wonderful things through our basketball ministry. Also, we're on day eight of our 30-day fast. How's everybody doing with that? Yeah, good, good, good. And this, briefly, the, the, the focus of this fast is not to just, you know, see who can do the, the, the most, the most uh, difficult things, who can give up the most difficult things. The goal is what? Spiritual fitness. This year, we're pursuing a greater degree of uh, spiritual fitness Moving closer to Jesus, and oftentimes moving closer to Jesus means moving away from certain things, all right? Moving away from those things, particularly those things that have a, a hold on us, particularly some of those things that have us bound. So we've been giving up things for the next 30 days. Uh, this is day eight of that. Things that we want to push away to, in order to push closer to God. Some people are giving up food. Some people are giving up Facebook. Some people are giving up coffee and pop and things like that. And I encourage you to continue. If you haven't been tracking along with us, today's a perfect day to start. If, by the way, you considered this past week was just a little too easy. In other words, what you gave up wasn't quite challenging enough. It's not too late to ratchet things up a little bit because we're pursuing what? Spiritual fitness. Amen. Well, to, I have the privilege of continuing and concluding a mini-series that I started last week. A series that we've simply called Resolutions Worth Keeping. We're eight days into a brand new year, and like I said last week, something about the new year that lets us just have this sense that we're turning over a new page. We have a clean slate to work with, and because of that clean slate, we make all sorts of New Year's resolutions. And what I proposed last week was that instead of making these huge lists, this grand list of grand resolutions that are sure to fail us by the second week in January, why don't we just take a, a little bit of time and really think about them and just make a few resolutions, particularly, particularly meaningful resolutions. Let's just make a few resolutions that will, that will go a long way to changing our life this year. Can you all track with me and commit to doing that? We're basing this series, by the way, we're basing our year on what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. I'm reading from the message version, starting around verse 28. Jesus asks, are you tired? 
Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and live lightly. So basically what Jesus is asking us as his people, what he's asking us as a church, is somewhat of a rhetorical question because Jesus knows everything. And he's asking us, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you worn out? Particularly, are you worn out through religion? You're worn out on empty religion? The master knows that we're tired. He knows that we're worn out. He knows that we're burnt out on religion. And why does he know that? Because he knows that we're carrying things that we weren't intended to carry. We've added things to our frail human frame that the maker did not design us to carry. We're carrying things like bitterness. We're carrying things like addictions. We're carrying things like besetting sins. We're carrying things like worry. We're carrying things like fear. We're carrying things like toxic relationships. And the master, the creator, the gardener, as we talked about last week, knows that he didn't design us to carry those things. And when he sees us carrying those things, he, he says, he comes up to us and says, Listen, are you tired of that yet? Are you worn out with that yet? Are you burned out on this religious stuff that you've created? If so, Jesus says, come, get away with me, and I'll show you how to recover your life. Walk with me, work with me, keep company with me. He says, watch how I do it. In short, Jesus says, follow me. So you want to make some resolutions that are worth keeping this year. Jesus says, make those resolutions around the idea that you will commit to following Jesus this year. Following Jesus issue. We're talking about resolutions worth keeping. And last week, resolution number one we highlighted was working his plan. Working his plan. That's a capital H. Not some random dude's plan, but working God's plan for your life. God has a plan for each of us because we're Christians. We belong to him. God has a plan for each of us individually because he's called each and every one of us to do something specific in his kingdom and in this world. And if you want to make a resolution worth keeping... You ought to commit yourself to working his plan. This week, we'll talk about resolution number two, and we'll call this message, Focus on That One Thing. Focus on that one thing. If you make a list of the dysfunctions in your life, let me just grab a quick drink of water. Excuse me. If you make a list of the dysfunctions in your life, particularly the things that have gone wrong as of late, particularly the things that you would sort of make a resolutions list about, some of us would come up with a good-sized list. And some of us would come up with a short list, but those things would be very major. Uh, Generally, how we decide to attack this list is we try to make these sweeping resolutions that's going to attack all these problems, right? We want to change everything about us. We want to deal with our foul mouth. We want to deal with our eating situation. We want to deal with the cavity that exists between us and God. And the list goes on and on and on. We try to attack this list January 1st, and guess what? We fail. But it's been my experience that the list of dysfunctions that I can make of my own life usually point to one major area of dysfunction that if I dealt with that area, if I leaned in on that small thing or that, that one thing, or for some of us it's one or two things, if I focused on that one thing, it would bring about uh, peace and uh, tranquility and it bring out some solutions to the areas of brokenness and dysfunction that I regularly deal with. 
back in the 80s, it was noted that in the, the urban, the distressed urban areas in New York City, there was this huge spike in major crimes. I mean, serious crimes like murder, burglary, armed robbery, and rapes. And this, the, the police commissioners were just baffled as to how they can combat, combat these issues. And they thought initially about making these huge and sweeping changes to really press crime back down. So enter James Wilson, who is a social scientist, and James Wilson comes up with this broken windows theory, a theory he calls broken windows theory. And what James Wilson noticed that when he walked through these distressed communities, he noticed that there were a lot of abandoned buildings. And not only were there a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of these abandoned buildings had broken windows. I mean, the kids had come along and they threw rocks at the windows and nothing happened, so they threw more rocks and there were all these broken windows. And not only were there broken windows, but as you walked through the streets, there was trash that littered the streets. There seemed to be weeks go by where the trash, the trash bags were not collected along the streets. There was graffiti everywhere. There was lots of small petty crimes like turn, people jumping turnstiles without any consequence. And what James Wilson figured out is, listen, this, all this stuff, all this disarray, all this stuff going unanswered suggests to the petty criminal that nobody's in charge, that nobody cares. And because nobody seemed to care when the petty infractions were created, they just escalated to more serious crimes. They saw the petty criminals turn into sort of mid-range criminals that start escalating to more serious crimes. And James Wilson told the police commissioner, hey, if you deal with this petty stuff, if you deal with these broken windows, you board up those windows, you make sure that nobody's throwing trash along the ground, you make sure the trash is being picked up, you, you paint over the graffiti, you deal with the turnstile jumpers, you'll see a significant decrease in major crimes. And guess what? He was right. They boarded up the windows. They picked up the trash. They did the small things. They focused on the little things, and it had a huge impact on the major areas of crime and dysfunction in the city. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. We've got all sorts of brokenness. We've got all sorts of gaps between us and God, and we're trying to figure out how can we do this, and it's my experience that God is usually putting his finger, Jesus is usually putting his finger on that one thing. He's saying focus on that one thing. So if you want to make a resolution that's worth keeping, let's talk this morning about focusing on that one thing. You say, man, I have two or three things. Okay, two or three things, but let's focus on that one or two things. Small changes bring about huge benefits. So Luke chapter 18 is where we'll study today. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. And we'll also be projecting the, uh, the words on the screens this morning. Before I get into this this morning, let me just pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for these people who have gathered here to worship you and to find out your plan for their life. Lord, I just pray that you would bring clarity today. God, I pray that this would be a great year for us individually, that this would be a great year for us as a church. God, would you come in your power? Would you change us? And especially this morning, would you put your finger on that one thing, Lord, that you're calling us to deal with, that one thing that will bring freedom and growth and change into our life. God, move me out of the way. Put power on these words this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Luke chapter 18, we're going to start at about verse 18. At verse 18, sorry. This morning we'll be reading from the NIV. I wish I could tell you there was some real reason other than the fact I just printed the wrong version on the screen. So we're going to be reading for, from the NIV this morning. We'll start at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, he asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brother or sister or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So we counted this story with Jesus and this young man. Some other versions call him a rich young ruler. Some of us, if we're familiar with this particular version or this particular story, we know this young man to be the rich young ruler or the rich young man. And this rich young man comes up to Jesus, and he presents Jesus with what seems to be a burning question. Jesus was excuse me, always being asked questions. We ask him questions. And when we open the Bible, we see that Jesus was always being asked questions. Some people came to Jesus with questions for the right reasons. And some people had questions for Jesus to try to you know, trip him up or try to break him down. This gentleman seemed to have a real sincere question with Jesus about how he could inter- inherit eternal life. And I think the significant thing about the opening part of this story is that this young man encounters Jesus. This guy willfully comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. Verse 18 says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do to be right with God? What can I do to be in right standing with God? What can I do so that in order to to receive eternal life, when this life is over, what can I do, Lord, to be right with you? What can I do to inherit eternal life? And what this young man was referring to was the kingdom of God that Jesus preached about. The kingdom of what can I do to come into your kingdom? And we've defined the kingdom over and over as a realm or a sphere in which God is in charge. A realm or a sphere in which God is in control. And when we come into the kingdom, when we accept what he offers us, we come into his kingdom, we simply submit to his rulership. We give him the right to rule and reign in our life. We give him the right to call the shots and to make the rules. And one of the benefits of that is that we inherit eternal life and all the, uh, the, good, the goodness of the kingdom in this present life. So this guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him. He answers him smugly. At first he says, why do you call me good? Jesus answers, no one is good except God alone. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony Honor your father and mother. Jesus just kind of runs through some of the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. You know this stuff already. Keep the commandments. And the young man says, listen, all of these things I've done since I was a little boy. So I'm okay, right? I'm square. Open the golden gates of the kingdom and let me in. Right? But Jesus says, not so fast. Not so fast. As we progress through this story, we see Jesus points out that one thing. 
right? We encounter Jesus. We ask him questions. He's always pointing things out. This young man asked Jesus a question, expecting to get a certain answer. He got that answer, but Jesus says, let me take this a step further. And he proceeds to point out that one thing. This is why it's important to regularly encounter Jesus. This is why we encourage you to regularly come to church, to regularly read your Bible, to regularly study the word and pray. Because it's in those moments, it's in being disciplined in those ways, that we have opportunities to come in contact with what Jesus has to say to us. Am I right? It's in those moments, it's exercising those spiritual disciplines that we come into contact with what Jesus has to say to us. Some of us don't want to come in contact with Jesus. That's why you don't read your word. That's why you don't come to church. You don't want to do business with God at all. But for those of us who are seeking to do business with God, to get on the same page with God, to move to a place of spiritual fitness, to deal with the the areas of brokenness in our life, we want to encounter God. We come to church, and here's where we open the Bible. And this young man encounters Jesus, and boy, does he get an encounter. And it's in these encounters where Jesus shows us the real us. He puts a mirror in front of us and says, this is who you are. And this is what happens with this young man. The young man says, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, the young man, that is, he became very sad because he was very, very wealthy. Jesus says, you're a good guy. I like you. You're a good guy. You can follow me, but you still lack one thing. Young guy said, listen, I've kept all the commandments. Jesus says, no, you haven't kept all of them. Jesus says, focus on this one thing. You're doing everything else. Jesus gives this young man a test, and he doesn't pass it. He says, look, you're a wealthy guy. Go get rid of all that stuff, and then we can get down to business. Go liquidate all of your assets and give it to the poor, and then we can do business. This guy was very wealthy, had lots of money, perhaps had a lot of influence, perhaps had grown comfortable with his lifestyle, very, not very easy for him to part with. And Jesus says, listen, you get rid of that, you can come and follow me. And the most important thing that I notice about the story that I haven't always noticed is that the guy went away sad. I've always noticed that he went away sad, but I've noticed this, this particular time that he went away sad instead of going away with an attitude or going away with indifference, which suggests to me that this guy knew what he was passing up. He went away sad because he said, man, I really could use some eternal life. I really could benefit. It's really my best interest to spend eternity with the Father, to come into God's kingdom, give him the right to rule and reign in my life. But you know what? I'm not, I'm not done with being rich yet. I'm not done with living in that big house on the hill yet. I like the ghost spokes on my chariot wheels. Man, eternal life. Man, I was hoping to cash in on that today. He went away sad. He made a conscious decision to pass up what Jesus offered him. Before we shake our heads at this young man, we need only look in the mirror because this is what we do every day. Jesus offers him a test and he failed. And it's important for us to examine the problem, not just the problem, but the solution. 
Jesus always offers us in his teachings and the story that he presents to us, he offers us the problem and the solution. We need not only focus on the problem, but let's first focus on the problem. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let's understand something first, that Jesus doesn't hate rich people. Jesus doesn't hate money. Jesus just knows that our riches, our stuff, often complicates our relationship with him. Jesus knows that our stuff, our status, the things that we hold dear, will often compete for, his, uh, for, for, for love and adoration of him. Both the tangible and intangible, our money, our talent, our good looks, our jobs, our careers, our families, our status in church, the church. It competes for our relationship with God. And the problem isn't money. The problem isn't that this guy is rich. The problem is nothing other than pure idolatry. Pure idolatry. God says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, listen, go back and look at the commandments. And what the rich young man had overlooked is commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, surely this young man who, keeping the commandments, he wasn't bowing down to some shrine of Baal in his house or some wooden god or something like that. And sometimes that's what we reduce idolatry to. It's some shrine, some other godlike figure that we bow to and we, you know, burn candles to. Idolatry is simply anything that's more important to you than your relationship with Jesus. Anything that you pursue with more fire and more passion than the kingdom of God. This is what idolatry is. And God doesn't care if you have him even at a close second. Whatever you have at number one on your list, your number one priority will dictate your life. We need only look at our own lives to make this true. But there's a great character here, caricature here of this in this story. The rich young man, he passed on eternal life because his idol, what was most important to him, for whatever reason, was his wealth, was his money. It held the number one spot. What's the number one spot in your life today? What is it that if Jesus came to you and said, hey, you ready for eternal life? You ready to come and tear this thing up for my kingdom? Ready to follow me? What is it that you would go away sad because you want to clutch it in your arms? Just think about that as we continue. So if the problem is idolatry, what is the solution? The solution is nothing other than complete surrender. Complete surrender. It's amazing how we always end up talking about the same things. The solution is complete surrender. Surrender. When Jesus came in Matthew chapter 14, verse 17, and he started preaching the message of the kingdom, he simply said, repent, for the kingdom is here. That's the message of the kingdom. That's what, uh, that's what we're expected to do when we come into the kingdom. And repenting is more than just saying sorry for the bad stuff that you did. It's more than just feeling sorry about the life that you lived before you met Jesus. Right? It's, it's, it's more than that. True repentance is dropping your agenda and picking up his, dropping your plans for your life that is certainly flawed and certainly doomed to fail. Just look behind you. Just look at the timeline of your life. Look at all the decisions that you've made, all the plans that you've crafted. 
They failed. If they haven't failed, they're failing. Even if you can't see it yet. And what true repentance means and what embracing the kingdom of God means is that you you drop your agenda and you pick up his. And like us, the rich young man simply wasn't done with his plan yet. He simply wasn't done with his idol yet. But there's some good news here. Jesus offers us a promise. The disciples are confused at this point. They're extremely confused. Those who heard what Jesus said said, who can be saved then? You have to understand, people people thought in these days that if you were rich, if you had stuff, then surely you were blessed by God. Look how evil you were, they thought. If you were blessed, if you had status and wealth, that God must surely be smiling on you. But God must surely be blessing you. And when they heard this guy essentially disqualify himself for eternal life, they were confused. They said that this guy, this guy who's rich and wealthy, surely blessed by God, if he can't be saved, then who can make it in? Who can make it? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, but we have left all to follow you. We've left all we had to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. I read that again. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. And much like the passage we read last week, this passage, or Jesus, what Jesus teaches us, comes with a conditional promise. The promise is that, listen, if you engage me, if you disconnect, if you unhook from some things to engage and to hook up with me, there's great blessing in that, in this life and in the life to come. If you engage me, if you abandon everything to engage me, there is great blessing in that. That's a great, I mean, that's a great place to shout and say amen. That's a promise from a credible source. It gives us hope, right? But this promise also needs clarification. It's often very misunderstood, like many of the promises of Jesus. Jesus is not saying if you gave up a house that you'll get many houses in this life. He's not saying if you leave a wife that somehow you get many wives or, you know, you walk away from mom that somehow you'll have four or five moms. He's not talking about that. There's a deeper meaning to what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying essentially is this. What God has for you is far better than anything he will ask you to leave behind. That what God has for you is far better than anything he will ask you to leave behind. And the trouble with that phrase, the trouble with that truth, because that is truth from a credible source, is that it's hard to see right now. It's hard to see right now. This young man was thinking, okay, I can see my money. You know, I just stopped by the bank and I got my receipt, you know, I got my receipt here, my balance. I just, I just saw my cash stacked up in the bank. I just left my opulent house. I rode here in my car, okay? I'm wearing my nice vestments. I'm wearing my nice clothes. I can't see eternal life. 
And Jesus, frankly, I don't know where you're going. You say, follow me, where are we going? What's gonna happen? What's around the corner? And it takes some faith to step out on this. It takes faith to follow, follow Jesus. This isn't for the weak. This isn't for the, the faint of heart. If it were, everybody would be doing it. If it were, all the people who claim to be doing it would be actually doing it. This isn't for the chumps. This is hard to do. We can't see tangibly what God has to offer. He asks us to take him at his word. He asks us to trust him. And Jesus says, listen, trust me, man. What I got for you is way better than anything you can leave behind. I'm going to give it back to you in spades. How do we see the big picture here? I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, what would God, if we encountered Jesus, if we ran up to Jesus and asked him this question, what must I do? I'm not talking globally as a Christian. I'm not talking hypothetically. I'm not talking generally. I'm talking, Master, tell me what Gino needs to do or what Terry needs to do or what David needs to do in order to inherit eternal life. Well, what's keeping me stuck? What's going to get me to the end of the race and, and only to have me disqualified? What is the source of all of this function in my life right now? What is that one thing, Jesus, that you would put your finger on if I encountered you in this way? And let me tell you something, friends. That's a, that's a hard question to ask. You dare not ask it if you don't want to see it. You don't want to do business with God? Listen, maybe just pull out your smartphone and play words with friends or something at this point. But if you want to do business with God, this is a question that, forget the first of the year. You ought to wake up in the morning asking this question. You ought to write it on the steering wheel in your car or in the mirror in your bathroom. What is it that I need to lean into, Lord, to be more like you? What does it mean? What's disqualifying me from inheriting eternal life? What's keeping me stuck? And we need not reduce this to the filthy, dirty sin issues that we think of when we think about what's keeping us stuck. You know, sometimes it's that, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but it's not always that. I'm just going to give you a few examples of what God may be calling you to give up. Put your seatbelt on. First, God might be asking you to give up your right to do nothing. Your right to do nothing. Let me tell you, as of late, this is my biggest pet peeve. Christians who do absolutely nothing. Christians who do absolutely nothing with their walk with Jesus. They come to church. They're happy calling themselves a Christian. They put the little ichthus, that little fish on their car, but they do absolutely nothing for the kingdom of God. It drives me crazy. And the day that stops driving me crazy is the day that I will hand this over to someone else. I'll stop being a preacher. I'll stop being a shepherd of this house the day that stops driving me crazy. But today, it drives me absolutely nuts. And let me just tell you, doing nothing is not compatible with being a Christian. It's not compatible. It's not compatible. Listen, if you do what you've claimed to do when you come into the kingdom, you stake Jesus at the very center of your life, and you say everything else is peripheral. Everything else is other. 
I don't live this earth to make money. I don't live on this earth to make money. I don't live on this earth to be happy. I don't live on this earth to to build a family or anything else. My goal is to please Jesus. And that's very countercultural. That's hard to hear. It, It almost sounds like I'm talking crazy this morning. But Jesus says, those that enter my kingdom, they strip themselves of their ambition, they strip themselves of their plan, and they say, Jesus, you tell me what to do. You tell me where to live. You tell me which church to go to. You tell me how to spend my money. You tell me how to raise my kids. You tell me which relationships to to be in. You tell me who to marry. Everything else is other in the kingdom of God. And this may be the first time you've heard that. I know that's a little hard to take in, but read your Bible. How much of what's broken in your life would change if you just took your faith seriously this year? How much of your life, how much of what's broken in your life would radically change if you took your faith seriously this year? I'm going to just take a few minutes and talk to the men in the room because we struggle in this area. We want to kick back and we want to do nothing. We want to show up at church and we want to do nothing. And we wonder why our wives don't respect us. We wonder why there's all types of brokenness in our home. We wonder why there's dysfunction. We wonder why our children are crazy. We wonder why there's no respect in our kids. We don't have any success in our relationships and in our career. Because you're just taking it easy. You're not loving God and loving people. You're not pursuing Jesus in the way that you should pursue him. You're not being the priest of your home. You're not setting some standards for your family to follow. And things are breaking down there. I remember very vividly when I recount growing up uh, as a youngster that my parents took this faith seriously. We weren't late to church. We weren't ever late to church. On Sunday morning, there was five, six of us to get ready. We were lined up watching TV hours before we had to leave. And we caught two buses and a train to get to church. When we got to church, my dad would hand us a dollar so we could have something to put in the offering. When there was an outreach, we all went to the outreach. And the list goes on and on and on. And what did that create in my mind? My dad was saying that this is important, son. This is important to us as a family. This is what we do in this house. So in my adult life, I take this very seriously. In my adult life, I have respect and reverence and fear for the Lord. In my adult life, I'm a generous giver to the kingdom of God with my time, my talent, and treasure. It's because my father saw fit to take a stand and be an example in our house as to what it meant to follow Jesus. I got a little crazy with it. They went overboard, you know. Now, in hindsight, I see some things that were just a little too strict or whatever, but he was well-intentioned. His goal was to live out his faith in front of his children. His goal was to live out his faith through his wife to be the priest of his home. And that's what he did. And my father has been dead for a little over a year now, but his legacy goes on in us because he taught us how to love, follow Jesus. My kids will be blessed because of what he showed me. Those of you who are under the sound of my voice every single week will benefit because he dared take a stand. How much of what's broken in your life will change, men, if you took your faith seriously? 
If you took your wife by the hand and you took your children by the hand, you said, listen, this, we are going to be a kingdom family starting today. We're going to serve the Lord starting today. We're going to throw ourselves into the Christian community today. How much of what's broken in your life would change? Some of you, if you encountered Jesus today and said, Lord, what is it that I would have to give up? What is keeping me stuck? He would say, you know what? You need to surrender your right to be in charge. You need to practice surrender. You need to practice submission. You need to practice giving deference to other people, especially to the Lord. And some of us have just been hurt by so many people. And the fruit of that hurt and the fruit of being betrayed over and over and over, you say, you know what, I'm going to take the wheel. And anybody who looks like they're going to step on me, I'm going to just cut them. Literally or figuratively, whichever one is appropriate for the situation. And Jesus said, you need to give up your right to be in charge. How much of what's broken in your life would change if you just surrendered? If you just closed your mouth sometimes and set on your opinion sometimes, let me talk to the ladies for a minute. How much of what's broken in your life, seriously, would change if you surrendered your right to be in control? Now, we're not a church that preaches, hey, you better, you better bow down to your husband and you better kiss his ring when he walks in the door and back away, you know. We're not, we don't teach that. But we do teach that God put the man at the head of the household to be the priest of that home. And that means something very different than what's commonly taught. We don't believe in the foolishness. We believe in mutual submission, but we believe that God has planted the man at the head of households, which, by the way, is why you need to step up and do what you're supposed to do, men. But to you women today, how much of the dysfunction in your home that's radiated all through your children, all through your finances... And all through your relationships, how much would change for the better if you just surrendered to God and you submitted to the husband that God gave you? How much would be different? How much would change? How much would improve? Is that the one thing that the Lord would put his finger on today? I'm not just talking about to women when I talk about submission. God has called us to be people that surrender not just to him but to authority. How many tickets have you talked your way into when you got pulled over? Had you only just said, you know what, officer? Man, I ran that light. How many warnings have you not gotten because you wanted to to mouth off or exercise your right to mouth off? How many jobs have you lost? How many dog houses are you in in your relationships, both professional and interpersonal, because you've just decided that you wouldn't submit, you wouldn't surrender, you wouldn't be humble, you wouldn't be meek? How much would be different if you surrendered? Some of you, the thing that Jesus would put his finger on is your money. Money is everything to you. Maybe you grew up poor and you never want to go back. Or maybe you grew up wealthy or having stuff and you just, man, uh, you know, I don't want to experience the other side of this. And everything you pursue, everything you go after, money is it. And if given the choice, Jesus or money, you choose money. Kingdom or money, it's money. Loving people or money, it's money. Loving God or money, it's money. And Jesus said, you got to pass up eternal life today 
for some cash. Can't take it with you. Some of you, it's money. Some of you, it's sex or sex-related things or sexual things. It doesn't matter if you're unmarried or married. Sex, is that, is that the thing that you need to surrender, the, the, the sexual dysfunction in your life? Maybe you're too attached to sex. Maybe you have a porn addiction or you used to have a porn addiction, but you're not acting out that physically, but still those thoughts race through your head and it controls you. You can't help but take that second look. You can't help but to go to those web pages. You can't help but look at the wrong magazines. You can't help but to objectify women. Or men, if you're a woman. What would God put his finger on? Maybe it's food for you. Maybe a lot of the problems in your life, your health, your self-image, and all a host of other things. Maybe it's related to food, an overindulgence in food, an addiction to food. Maybe your family is the idol. Maybe you say, you know what, my family comes first no matter what. That's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's not in there. I looked. And I love my family dearly, but they do not come first. And they do not come first because I love them. They do not come first because I love them. God destroys idols. He will have nothing. Even if it's your dear, sweet grandma, he will have nothing compete for number one spot. And I love them so much that I'm going to seek the kingdom because the Bible says that when I seek the kingdom, everything else will be added to me. When I seek the kingdom, everything will be added. What would Jesus lean into today? What would he reflect back to you if he put the mirror in front of you this morning? The Lord has promised us a great year as a church, as individuals. I believe that. Worship team, you can come up. The Lord has promised us a great year. But it's con- that's a conditional promise. That's a conditional promise. He says, look, if you, if you seek the kingdom this year, if you work my plan this year, you will have a year like none other. And I say the key to doing that is not only working his plan, but dealing with those things that keep you stuck. Some of you, you think of it now. You think about that one thing, that if you just dealt with that one thing or that, those two things, you start to get some freedom. You can even see how if you made the changes in those areas, you can even see the possibilities. You can see the possibilities. Well, it doesn't do us any good if we just talk about it and hear about it. The goal is to walk outside of those doors and to be transformed. The goal is to walk outside of those doors and put the words of Jesus into action and to be different. To be different. Listen, you've done the same thing year after year with poor results. Why not try what Jesus offers? Why not heed his, his, his commandments? Why not heed his suggestions and vow to live differently, to be transformed? I don't know about you, but I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to search my life. I'm going to search my heart. I want to take a hard, honest look at what Jesus is saying to me, and I want to be different, and I hope that you will be different too. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. Now, we don't like it all the time because it cuts us. It cuts us down. It brings us down to size. It ruins this, you know, great image that we have of ourselves. 
But God, you show us the truth. You speak the truth to us because you want us to be different. You want us to walk in freedom. You want us to have a great life with you at the center of it. And God, whatever you pointed to today and the lives of the people sitting here, Lord, I just pray that you would give them the strength and courage to really lean into those things, to really do business with you today, Lord, that this year might be their best year yet. Not because they found some scheme or some business idea or some other thing, Lord, because they truly decide to put their money where their mouth is, to put their life where their mouth is this year, and to walk this thing out with you at the center of their life. Come, Holy Spirit, help us where we're weak. Help us where we struggle. Help us where we've just developed habits and, 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 and patterns of dysfunction and brokenness. Things that are just killing us softly. Would you come in your power and your strength? Would you bring freedom? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.